Hey guys, Ida here, and you're listening to Say New World. It's been a while since a new episode came out, but there is some new essay material on the publication. I wrote about how thinking has a character of play and published a note to celebrate soft-launching Sane. Go check it out, and if you haven't already, sign up to our waitlist to play around with what we've been building. Anyhow, I'm excited for this new episode where I'm speaking with Paul Rooney. Paul is the founder of Cosmic, an infinite canvas meant to replace your computer desktop with a spatial workspace where you can write, think, draw, and browse the web. Before founding Cosmic, Paul studied philosophy in college and worked as a junior director in a documentary production company near Paris. This is where his desires for better computers for creative people appeared and why he ended up starting Cosmic. Paul is also the co-founder of a furniture company in France and passionate about design, computer history, and cooking. In this episode, Paul and I chat about many mutual interests. We dig into Paul's background and how he got into advocating for creative and personal computing since the age of 12. We talk about the different models we have in the world for innovation, creation, and the development of new ideas, and what could be improved there. We also touch on individual talent and how it could foster better institutions to support deep thinking and long-term projects, and how we need more humanities to counterbalance all the STEM. A lot of important and interesting topics. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you all think about this one. And now I bring you Paul Brony. Okay, I'm here with my very good friend, Paul Brony. Paul, welcome. I'm so happy to finally have you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. Hey, Ida. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure for me. Of course. Um, so yeah, let's start talking about, well, what interests you really? Uh, what do you care about, Paul? What do I care about? Well, that's a, that's, that's a very open-ended question. Um, uh, I care about a lot of things. Um, my, I would say that my, my main interests right now are around um, making uh, computers and software uh, nicer to use and to try to you know, bring them back to their original roots and to make software and computers tools for creativity and tools for thinking. Uh, so I care a lot about um, how to create great tools for people that, um, you know, that, that are knowledge workers. Uh, I care about a lot about um, ideas, philosophy. Uh, I'm very interested into a lot of other things, uh, but I would say those are the main interests I have right now in my life. Very cool. And so what's your background? Um, well, maybe just for, the, for context for our listeners, like you could explain a little bit about your background and particularly some of the... We call them nodes because the saying and nodes, um, nodes are significant experiences or influence or moments that have ultimately led you to become who you are or start pursuing the ideas that you are now pushing for. Mm. So um, I think honestly, it's it's a it's a very I had the chance to be uh, to 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 be born in a in a, in a family where um, my two parents are um, intellectuals. My father is a writer and uh, he's also a, a French teacher here in France, where, where I live. And so I was born in a house filled with books and filled with people that were interested in, in a lot of things from history to politics to um, science. And so that really opened my mind. And uh, I would say that the most uh, interesting thing that happened to me or the things that made me who I am right now and, and, and made me want to work on what I work today are when I was a, a, a young kid. Uh, I have two older brothers and they were getting into college and I wanted a computer, but I was eight years old and my parents were like, you're too young to have a computer of your own. Uh, what would you do with it? So no. And my uncle gave me a very old computer from the 1980s. And that computer had, uh, you know, it, it booted in a programming language, uh, as a lot of computers from that uh, uh, era were, were doing. And so you had no choice but to learn how to program. 
uh, and that computer basically became um, started a passion in me. And I was extremely surprised because uh, modern computers, even right now, if you look at them, when you turn them on, they do not present you with, um, they do not tell you, come and create. They tell you, what do you need to do? Do you need to write some text? Do you need to do accounting? Do you need to simulate things into a spreadsheet? Are you an architect? And do you need to use CAD? And all computers, older computers were like, I'm a computer. I'm the most malleable media you will ever encounter. Uh, just do whatever you want with me. And you just, you just have to learn that language that I uh, know how to talk uh, to, to do that with me. And so that was one of the most, I would say, um, I remember that moment in my childhood very, very, very uh, vividly. And so afterwards, because I had that, uh, the other note is that because I had that very old computer, it was impossible to find software for it. And so I became interested in how to find software for it. And to do that, I had to learn a bit about computing history. I uh, met a few people in France that are still working and petitioning uh, for the opening of the equivalent of what the US and other European nations have, um, like computer history museums. And um, I met those people, and I learned that a lot of human beings were interested in, in, in the course of computing history and what it means to use those tools. So I joined them, and I became a member of that association, and I became fascinated by computing history, the history of science, and how we got there. And as I was growing older, I would say that the, the third nod is that I discovered that there was a lot of context around the uh, instruments, around the devices, around the computers themselves. Like the people that created the world we live in, at least the tech world, also have you know, political ideas, they have views on the world, they want to create something because they believe in something. So I became super interested in the history and the lives of those people from uh, von Neumann to Eddie Lamar to Ted Nelson to Alan Key. Alan Kay. Um, and that became really my, uh, my passion. And my goal was to, at some point, find a way to combine working in tech and working on tech history. And so mm. uh, the last note is that because I became super interested in, in that, uh, I did philosophy in college. And I, um, I think that ma majoring in, a, in, a, in humanities uh, was one of the best decisions I, I took for what I do now. Uh, so that's kind of the, I would say, the fourth note that made me who I am. That's amazing. Very succinct. I love it. Um, so were you, you were you a teenager? Like, were you underage when you started participating in this move movement or association? Sorry. Or I was. I think the, the 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 it's it's an association. It's a non profit organization, quite a small one. And when I joined, it was between I think it was around forty members. And I was 11 years old, so I was one of the youngest. Um, and I was really, really, uh, I would say, embedded into that world until I was about 17. And then, you know, you have to, uh, in France, when you are 17, you have to, to work quite a lot to have the, the back. or well, not quite a lot, but you have to have the back. And then you have to go to college. And so I had, uh, you know, more work and I went kind of away, but I always stayed in contact. And I believe that what they, they, they want to achieve is, uh, is a very worthy pursuit and uh, um, yeah so I don't know if that answers the question but I think it was yeah. one of the most interesting thing I, I, I did in my life yeah uh, well you mentioned like computers being there for productivity purposes over more over creativity purposes and that's something that I've talked a lot about with different guests on the podcast and also written about like this whole productivity versus creativity way of approaching life and <laughs> not just work but everything else in it as well um, and I'm really curious about like these concepts of, you know, like how we live in this world of total labor and how the sort of like essence of being human is really defined by 
work and how much we work and what we work on um, and how we could potentially have this opportunity to make a shift more towards like the essence of being human is more about creating an open exploration and like what that could actually do for the world in general. So I'm curious about your thoughts just on a general level in this subject of like creativity versus productivity and how we think about computers and obviously with your you know work with cosmic and everything else like what's the sort of like approach or idea that you're you're driving when when we talk about you know productivity versus creativity that's that's also very a very um wide question but i i have a lot of thoughts on that and and they're not entirely related to computers but i think that um as we move towards you know an economy that's more designed for services um, a lot of people transition to knowledge work. So people work with computers. And so computers are now designed to achieve those work. And the problem is, I think that people are more and more questioning the very work they do. And uh, we've seen, and I'm sure you've seen that too, with the advent of um, ChatGPT and other innovations. A lot of people are questioning themselves and, and uh, reflecting on the fact that maybe a machine could do part of their job. And, and I think that's, all of this is very entangled, and all of this comes... I, I always think that when we approach something in tech, when we create something, when we look at the phenomenon that are happening, we always lack context. Like, we look at ChatGPT and we look at, for example, um, the advent of AI, and we, we, we do not make a parallel uh, between that phenomenon and, for example, what happened with the first and then the second re industrial revolution. But what I think is super interesting is that if you look at mechanization, for example, the fact that we use the machine to enhance the outputs of a worker, and which created the entire 20th century and the world we live in right now, if you look at mechanization very early on, before the Industrial Revolution, it was seen as a way to play. Uh, if you look at uh, what uh, uh, people call automats, I don't know how to say it in English, but basically the fact that you could mimic the movement of a human. Uh, by creating some kind of robots, uh, it was not thought that those things could enhance productivity. They were thought of as, a, you know, uh, um, entertain for uh, entertaining purposes. And I think that today the problem with computers is that we do not start exploring those new technologies by thinking about how they could entertain us. And so the problem is, I don't know, it's a very, very, very... It's something I care deeply about because I think that a lot of people right now do not find a lot of meaning in their work. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that we live in a world where the advent of technology created workers that are uh, estranged and extremely lonely. And I'm very, very, very torn when I look at what a computer allows you to do today. And I'm, I'm torn on so much issue, and I'm sorry because I'm going to get on maybe a rambling that's going to get too far from your question. But for example, when you look at people like right now, we are talking over the phone. We know each other because we met each other. But we, um, I would say that maybe the bulk of the time we spent together reflecting on those issues was online. And the problem is, for example, the, the, the fabric of, of human life right now, and computers are part of that fabric now, uh, is extremely cold. Uh, and, and that's something that I think about when I think about productivity versus creativity. I don't know how to explain it in a very clear manner. But in, in, in my opinion, we are not, um, the potential that computers give us is, is kind of um, not used for, for the best. 
um, because or at least we, like the, to the full extent that we yeah because we we, we default to we consume a lot of things you know it, this is something I also truly care about like computers today works with applications and then they work those applications work on data on documents and I think this is a bad model because it pushes you to always create new apps and new file formats and people do not care about that. People want tools. And the problem is right now, when you use an app, for example, that app is monolithic. It is its own thing. And you cannot tear it apart and say, oh, OK, I'm using Photoshop. I'm painting on something. I just want to take that paintbrush here. And I want to use that paintbrush in my spreadsheet because I want to do something else. I want to mix those data together. And so it's super hard for people to be creative with the software we have today because the file formats are extremely rigid. The apps are extremely rigid. And even the new paradigm that we are shown, like for example, uh, this is uh, something that you, may, that you may have read on Twitter uh, 10 times already, but when you look at the, the, the new headset from Apple, like you look at those demos, and honestly, they're, they are great. Like the, you cannot uh, argue with the fact that the technology is top notch, like the hardware is the top that you could dream of for those kind of devices. But then you look at the software, and the examples that are shown by Apple are either people that Put on the headset and look at a Mac or something else and they enhance their experience. Like they have multiple monitors, it helps them multitask, it helps them basically do more things at once. Or they are extremely lonely, they are on the couch alone with nobody else and they look at a giant screen that isn't even there because it's in the headset and they, you, you, you're supposed to understand that the uh, experience is better than if you looked at a TV. And then you have that very weird video where a father puts on the headset to work on a, I think it's a surfboard, and one of his child uh, kicks in a ball, and the father just sees the child through the headset and kicks back the ball and just goes back to, to doing something that he was interested in. What I mean by that is that we are living, honestly, we are, in my opinion, we are veering towards something very dystopian. And when you look at that headset, for example, where is the paradigm shift? I don't want to put a computer on my nose. Like the, the, the thing is with the desktop computer that you have in front of you, I can I can take your hand if you're in, in the in the room with me and I can say, hey Hida, come here, sit next to me and we can look at something together. And if we add another, you know, layer, another medium on top of that, it's not going to be better. It's going to add friction in my opinion. And if the headset is just capable of displaying more windows and more apps, I don't see the point. The thing is, with something like that, if you have a headset on you and you can use your hands, you want to be able to find back some of that tactility that the real world gives you. You want to be able to pull things, to take things, to mix them. And there is something that I joked about with some people I work with, where at some point you see a demo of the headset and you see Excel. You see someone using Excel. And I'm like, Excel exists since 1985, I think, or 84. It was one of the first apps for the original Macintosh. And it transitioned almost without a change to the headsets. And it's running on a window, but that window is just floating in the air. This is what I mean by productivity versus creativity. We are giving people tools that nobody could imagine. And we're using them to put Excel into the metaverse. And I don't <laughs> discuss the fact that the achievement is, is like, it's an achievement. Somebody worked tirelessly for years and years and years and billions of dollars were poured into the hardware. And I don't discuss the quality of that. It's just that what it is used for is, in my opinion, abysmally unimaginative and sad. Yeah. And, and that's what, and I think that um, 
with the computers we have today, with the languages we have today, we should strive to do better. And so to go back to your original question, and I'm sorry for all the diversions, uh, this is what I mean by productivity versus creativity. And one last thing is, for example, we also are in an industry, and I think it has its um, positives and negatives, where if you want to have the means to develop a large project on a long time horizon, you probably have to turn to VCs. And VCs will sometimes bet on outlandish projects, but usually, and you know that as well as I do, you have to come to them with a plan that you can execute on that is clear and that even if it's not completely, you know, even if you do not stick completely to the plan, at some point you have to make money on a reasonable time horizon to increase your value, to go to the next round or to be sold. And so the problem is if you want to have a paradigm shift of the scale we are talking about, you need 10 years, if not 20. I'm not sure you need that much money. I think you need people and you need to put them in a room and you need to say, you have as many time as you want, just invent something new. And the problem is we do not have that many people doing that right now. And computing history is filled with people that were capable of doing that. Everything we're using today from, uh, you know, typewriting, uh, no, uh, word processing software and everything was basically not invented, but thought and refined at the Xerox part in large part. And one of the software that is a token on, of the tools for thinking community, HyperCalc, was created by Bill Atkinson because at some point he was like, I think I have an idea for a software that can do very weird things and I don't know how to call it. And it was never settled. Nobody knows how to call hyper, HyperCalc. But it was capable of doing things as different as being an index for your contacts, being uh, a slip box for your recipes, being a database for children to learn about uh, history and geography. It was even used to create games. One of the, I think, most popular video games in history, Myst by Cyan, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, was prototyped in HyperCal. Mm. And so we do not have the liberty to, we have that freedom to work on, on very weird ideas and weird projects. But you cannot go to someone and say, I need money to create a software that will have no names, but will be capable of doing super weird things in every conceivable domain in computing science. But I don't know what that is yet, <laughs> TVD. Yeah, exactly. And Bill um, Atkinson was capable of doing it because he had worked on the Macintosh and he had cloud at Apple and he was backed by the CEO. And he was basically also, and everybody forgets that, HyperCAD was a success because he, 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 he forced John Scully, who was CEO of Apple at the time, to put HyperCAD in every Macintosh box ever sold uh, and, and, and that was the deal or he was leaving. And it was so precious that they accepted. So that's the kind of magnitude you need to, to, they need to, to extend you to go to. Yeah, I think um, just in with the Apple Vision Pro stuff and the lack of imagination when it came to their demos, like I, I really hope that the reason the examples were so dull and more of the same was just because they made a marketing call of wanting to not scare people off by something that you have to do differently and like put this device on your head that it would be certain, you know, that I, I hope that it was just a marketing call and that's it. Um, but I'm curious, like what you think is, what you think is like, well, if we talk about, well, you told me off mic in, in very nice words that you believe human beings are, you know, creators and thinkers and these sensible creatures that will live happy lives if they're able to add beauty into the world. So um, and a lot of what you just talked about and before this question was alluding to that as well. So what do you think in just practical terms is needed to be done for people to have 
space and time 10 years to actually innovate something new? Like what, what is required from the world in order to create environments that enable this level of innovation? Obviously a super hard question. So like no pressure, but you know, I'm just that's, curious. What, that's a super do you have a theory of everything? <laughs> and I, I, I also think that I'm right now, um, with the background I have and with the experience I have, I'm still very un unqualified or underqualified to answer it. But my, so I'm going to answer it with my, with my hopes and what I believe could be, mm. could be good. Um, one of the examples, and that not, that's not very original, um, that, I, that I think there are a few examples of, of places where people were able to innovate and to, to, to go to extreme lengths in, in, you know, in doing new things. And there is Black Mountain College, which was that you know extremely open school uh, where people were working on super different things and they were put together. I there don't is know. This school. What is it? Um, Black Mountain College. So it would take super long to to to, to tell you more about it. But basically, it was it was an, an art school where people were mixed together to work on very different disciplines okay. um, and and to 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 create interdisciplinary thinking, uh, which I think we also tremendously lack today. Like I was absolutely. I was super sad to see that some VCs, for example, on Twitter were extremely happy to see that fewer and fewer people were getting into humanities degrees and they were like, this is a net positive for society. I don't see how it is a net positive for society to have less people that want to think and create and study how the world works. And so I think that it all starts with, um, I don't know how to say that, but I, I, I have that, that idea that the, the it's... Give me one minute to think about it. So I think a few examples exist and did work. And the problem is that we, we live in a world today where we optimize for the wrong metrics, in my opinion. And for example, if you look at um, some, if, if you want to create an environment where people will revolutionize, revolutionize the world several times, um, you, I don't think you can optimize only for profit. And I don't think you can optimize only for shareholder value creation. And I think you have to optimize for other metrics. You have to optimize for uh, R&D spendings. You have to optimize for patience. You have to optimize for, I'm not going to look only at the quarter results. I'm going to look at the 10-year horizon. And so um, I believe, for example, my favorite example is uh, Olivetti in Italy. Because Olivetti is a weird company. It was created in 1911, if I'm not mistaken. So about the same year as IBM. And Olivetti was always from the days of the founder, Camilo Olivetti, to the days of uh, where his son became CEO of the company, so Adriano Olivetti. Olivetti was always about maxima maximizing efficiency, but also maximizing beauty. And Adriano Olivetti was, um, first, first he was part of the reformist uh, tendency of, uh, in the fascist party in Italy, because he had no choice. Fascism was, you know, the dominating power in Italy. Italy was fascist. If you wanted to be able to rule a company, you had to be part of that establishment. But he was extremely critical, and he had to go into exile several times. And he believed in what he called the Fabrica Felice. And so he believed that companies could become um, receptacles for people's ambition, and that you could create an environment where people would work, but they would also be able to participate into a larger project, and where the company, because the company even if you are very social, even if you are for diminishing the time we spend at work every day, the bulk of your way, of your awakened hours are going to be spent working on something. That's just the reality right now. And so he thought that companies could optimize 
the workers' hours, but they could also optimize other things in their lives. Like it could be a vehicle to help people um, learn about culture, learn about humanities, learn about other skills, and just realize themselves. That's something that I strongly believe in. That right now, unfortunately, the, the, the best course of action for someone that wants to create what we're discussing is not to try and change society because it's going to be too, too difficult, but it's to create a company or to create something, an organization with people where they can work and express themselves. And I strongly, strongly, strongly believe uh, that you need to have side projects to express yourself. And mm, how could I tell that also more? Um, we have the ability to create tools extremely easily right now. Computers do not default to programming languages anymore, but with everything that exists today, if you want to create something on a computer, and if you want to create something, the easiest way to create something like a tool is through a computer. With products like Replit, ChatGPT, and other things, even if you do not, do not know how to program, you can probably prototype something. And so I believe that even if the world today is not organized and um, geared towards creativity, it has never been so easy to create something. Yeah. Well, do you think that the startup world does a good job of creating startups that allow for this type of intellectual and creative pursuit for people that work in it? Or like, or what's sort of like missing from the equation of startups being able to provide this type of, I don't know, structure, community? What do you, what would, what, what's the word that you would put for describing what you just did? Mm -hmm. I think it definitely comes down to the fact that you need to have some kind of freedom of action, um, for lack of a better word, but it's not exactly that either. But to go back to your question about startups, I think that if done well, yes, there's nothing better than a startup to create something new and also um, put it into the world, distributing it. The problem with startups, in my opinion, is that the startup world lives on myth and symbolism. And the symbols are so, so strong that people in the startup world, in my opinion, conform to one another to reproduce stereotypes because they think it's going to breed success. Mm. And so that's one of my main problems. Like at some point it was, uh, people like to be extremely, uh, I don't know how to say that, uh, people wanted to be the next Steve Jobs. And they had read somewhere that Steve Jobs was a moron when he was working with people. So they tried to be morons with their team. Uh, at some point, people thought that the only way to succeed, people compare themselves to real metrics, like, oh, my competitor raised more. It does not mean that the product is better. It means that they were able to tell a story, and maybe they had numbers at that moment that were extremely compelling for an investor. But it, it's not a predicator of their success and of their, of their capacity to um, make the world a better place. And so I believe that the startup world, with the fact that the good thing about the startup world is that you can come speak with an investor or with other people. They will never uh, be, um, how could I tell that? You know, they will never dismiss you. Um, whatever your background is, if you come with a good idea and a, a good plan and you just start working on that idea, people will support you. And they will oftentimes support you to extreme length. They will be extremely, extremely supportive beyond the point of, uh, you know, they will be unreasonable. But the problem is that we have too much symbols and I believe that we also think too much in terms of we look at the market and we look at what's working today and it's very hard to anticipate what's going to be needed tomorrow. And so I believe that we copy each other a lot and we always and we work on very adjacent product categories because those are the categories that are getting funded. Yeah. And so I believe that the 
the best way to maybe enhance the startup world or to reform it, whatever you prefer, is to bet on companies, but also to bet on people. And I think the, the thing to reform is not the startup world, but the way it is financed and the intricate relationships between angels, VCs, and founders, and who gets funded for um, whatever reason. So that, that, that's one thing I think we could really, really, really optimize. And I think, for example, that incubators are, I don't know, I think they could be really better. I think there is something that we're missing. There's, there, there's a missing link between, you know, you get out of a university, you, you, you have, you know, that, those, those capabilities, you're a great developer. And then you start a startup and then you have very different courses of action. Either you start on your own and you try to round up some funding, or either you have some money and you can wait a bit before you want you want to raise, or you go into an incubator or a startup studio. And I think startup studios and incubators could be the things that we could optimize to innovate and to breed more creativity. Yeah. And the other thing I strongly believe in is that we need to find a way to make humanities and technology speak together and, and talk to each other more and more and more. And there is that kind of cliche in technology where everybody is like, oh, I work at the intersection of liberal arts and technology. Nobody's doing that. Nobody is doing that because people dismiss liberal arts and they like to see good art. They like to read interesting books, but they dismiss everything that makes them possible. And they're like, oh no, uh, you need to major in STEM if you want to be a serious person and make good money. And I think this is the, uh, the, the, most problematic aspect of the startup world right now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've. Oh, what? Well, what do you think about doing like these entrepreneur in residence programs? Like, do you think? Because if I think about like optimizing incubator programs or accelerator programs or startup studios, the first thing that comes to mind is like time, because now the vast majority of the programs work in a way where you already have to have an idea and sort of like the grounds for what you're going to build. And then you have to try to get into one of these things. And then you have what, like between 10 to 12 weeks on average to make that thing a reality, which is uh, crazy. I mean, it's amazing if you already actually know what you want to build and you're really committed to the thing that you want to build and you want to just like push that forward. And then um, I personally um, have had great experiences with that. But um, like, if I think about sort of like pre, like, pre-sane for example i think that the thing i could have most benefited in the world like it's not about access to capital at that stage or anything else it's about being supported in an environment that is sort of like you know conducive to innovation and helps you meet the right people and have the right conversations um and ha like in a way that you actually can pay your rent and have enough time to sort of let the ideas mature that you don't feel this pressure like i need to come up with an idea and to start executing on it on week seven but you might at least you might actually have like a year or two years or maybe in some cases even three years to sort of just research and develop and test and to converse that would be amazing how can we make that happen i i honestly i couldn't i couldn't agree more um i personally also had uh, great experiences with incubators but i was very already quite far away on, on the journey and, and Cosmic was a working product. It, it existed. It had a number of flows that you cannot even imagine. Um, but it was there. It was, it, it was something. And so I, I, I think that there are several issues today and maybe it touches upon the education system. Like we, I have the impression, and again, this may sound very cliche, that before you... you, you go out of high, of high school and, and you get into college. Nobody will ever tell you what it means to start a company or an organization, not necessarily a company, maybe a nonprofit, maybe something else, maybe a group of, of persons. 
we teach you how to optimize. We optimize you to be a good employee. We optimize you to be someone that will be able to graduate in, in some domain, become a specialist, and then find a job in that specialty, and hopefully stay in your lane and progress into that specialty up until the point where you make good money and you're supposed to be happy. And we do not account for the fact that, like, so everything else is basically left to chance. And the problem is that it means that entrepreneurs also have very, 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 I would say, um, I don't know, um, very common background. Like they, all, they, they always have, they come from families where they're, Usually there is some entrepreneurs uh, or there is some money to support them while they figure things out, they figure things out, or they have networks through their families or friends that helps them to understand things that they um, haven't been teached. And so I believe, just like you said, that we need something. I don't know what it is. Um, we need a curriculum or a way to say to people that want to create something, to put something into the world, Here's, here are the few keys that you absolutely need to have if you want to just survive. Because the problem of, of startups in general and young companies, whatever the funding model is, is that it's super difficult to get over the, to, to start. This is always the problem. Like you need to start, you need to survive. And once you're over the hump, even if you're going to encounter great difficulties, but you're, you're basically alive. And so I don't know how to teach people that, but I, I completely agree with you that we need to have organizations that take young people, and maybe not even young people, people in general, that have an idea and that tell those people, you have as many time as you want and you have uh, basically some money to, 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 to do that. And I believe that some universities, uh, especially in England, had programs like that, but that they're more and more difficult to, to, to fund um, because, you know, you need quite a lot of money to pay someone, even not that much, for five years maybe. Yeah. And so... Maybe that's something, uh, there are a few models that are very interesting where some VCs now are trying to use the proceeds of exits, that of successful exits, to fund companies, but also they, they, they take some of that uh, money that they're getting back to fund people and to fund more ambitious projects that have longer time horizons. And yeah. maybe that's a good model. Yeah, because I, I, I would also guess that if I imagine myself, for example, going through one of these types of programs that it wouldn't just be a a business program or um like um like an r d like it wouldn't it would it would also be like much more of a holistic thing that i think it needs to take um a personal approach to it as well because so much of being able to create and to develop something is about you as an individual and how you relate with yourself and the world around you and how you can sort of unblock a lot of the barriers that you have and all of us have different kinds of barriers a lot of them are also similar and I think it's really interesting to also take in like a, a more holistic personal perspective into how can you get out the things from within yourself that you know you have but you just can't reach yet um, and yeah so let's throw some like psychedelics and uh, founder coaching and um, meditation into the mix as well and and if there's anyone who has a lot of money listening to the podcast, now would be a good time to send me a, and Paul an email. <laughs> no, but really, it's, uh, this is something we've also, you know, uh, talked about with other start startup founders. Like, uh, would it be possible in some way to maybe, I don't know, you, you at, at the point where you, you, you're generating revenues, but you still have, you know, a lot of, you have a lot of cash because you raised uh, money. Um, would it be possible maybe, um, we discuss that with, with other companies, like, we want to change the way computers 
handle data, for example. So we need a new kind of file system, we need a new kind of database, and this in turn will enable a new user interface, so nicer interactions, uh, better workflows, um, you know, a lot of new things that could be super nice. And there are tens, maybe hundreds of companies working on those problems right now. But because they need to compete, they compete on everything. And they reinvent something that the their neighbor has already invented. And I strongly believe that it would be interesting and honestly not that damaging to companies to sometimes pull together their resources and to say, okay, so Pasmic and a few other companies, let's say 10 companies, need a new database or a new file system. Here's where they are right now. We could all benefit from this. We could create synergies. We are going to compete at some point. We are going to compete on the front end. We're going to compete on the distribution. We're going to compete on the pricing model. Maybe you are consumer oriented. Maybe you are more B2B oriented. But we need that infrastructure and we need that new file system to create our products. And while we are busy competing on the underlying layer that we all need to start generating revenues, there is another competitor that exists that have been on the market, that has been on the market for 10 years, and that will just steamroll all of us because we are spending too much time and too much money on something that is extremely difficult and that we could resolve if we work together. So I believe, and I've tinkered with that model sometimes in my mind, that we could we could do something where, for example, a startup could, uh, if you if you if you do that. Uh, you could vouch that the, the, the protocol that would result from such an effort would be open source. And I've also thought about how we could create maybe some kind of intermediary companies where, let's say we create a new database. And that database uh, is private because we've spent the money of our investors creating that database. And they're not okay with the fact that we're going to give it to some of our competitors, even if it's going to you know, raise all of us and allow us to be better companies in general. So not, they do not agree to that. But we tell them, this technology is fundamental for the advancement of some future computers. So what we propose is that it's closed source, but we add something, we add a clause somewhere in a legal document that if we go under that organization there that has a copy of the code, but that will never use it, um, that organization, if we go under, has the right and the duty to publish the code and to maintain it and to promote it. And so I believe that also the problem is that we take for granted the fact that startups will just die 80% of the time, maybe less, maybe more. I don't know what is the real number. Um, and I, I do believe that some of them are taking with them an amount of progress and, and prowess that would change the face of the technological world if we could get our hands on, on, on what they did. And the problem is when a startup dies, it dies and, and, and nobody seems to care. And I strongly believe we need some kind of system, institutions and groups of people that would monitor some, you know, the progress, the things happening at several companies and that would have those kind of missions. Uh, in, hand in hand with VCs and other, you know, participating in the ecosystem. That's also mm -hmm. how I think we can, you know, um, optimize for creativity or productivity. We, we, we cannot, uh, we shouldn't find normal that when a company goes under, everything it has created disappears and there is nothing left. Um, and it's kind of like in the scientific world. When you are a good scientist, when you are a good researcher, you publish all of your results, especially the ones where your findings are negative. Because for the community, for the scientific community, it means that you're saving thousands of hours to some of your peers. 
And so I don't know how to do that properly, but I think that to optimize for creativity, as we were discussing in the beginning of the podcast, we need to find a way to, 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 to rethink competition and to rethink how we compete together in the marketplace and the, the intricate reality of uh, the startup world. Yeah, perhaps it's just because it's, it's so young, you know, like startups haven't been around for that long and we just haven't had the time yet to get so systematic um, on all these matters. Like we need some kind of, you know, innovation process that is similar to the academic process of how um, all over the world people do things in the same way in order to be able to participate to advancing the scientific community. So maybe we need like a mini ministry for dead startups. <laughs> <laughs> to bring everything together but it's also something that's very interesting that's something that we've discussed with our founders even with you um, it's very hard to talk about what happens when a founder gets an employee and that's also something that we should discuss more because the reality is that um, it's it's once you've failed one startup it's probable that the best thing you have to do is to recreate one um, yeah. because I don't know how easy it is for a founder that has failed to find a job Uh, some say they are highly coveted because they have a lot of experience and they have failed so they know um, some of the traps that other companies will encounter. But I've also heard people say they're not going to have an easy time um, finding another job. And I think this is something. If we want people to create things, if you want people to create tools, if you want people to have the time to do that, if you want people to take the risk associated with creating tools, we need to tell them about all of those things. Yeah. And so... We need to talk more about all of this and, and we need to make it easy for people to create tools and we need to make it accessible. Like, for example, one thing that to me is uh, one of the, some of the great accelerators, uh, in my opinion, of technological progress uh, are things like the Raspberry Pi or the Arduino. And one thing that I forget to mention is that I, I think that slow growth is also a very interesting thing like if you look at some companies like look at panic for example panic is uh, they, they had a, a text editor they, they were basically a software publisher and developer for the mac for the macintosh and at some point because they they, they took things um they worked on their own rhythm uh, with their own objectives with their own goals and they were completely undisturbed at some point they created a game console the playdate which is killing it in the marketplace and so i wonder about how to create very, you know, very sustainable, slow and steady approach that, you know, it seems that those companies create layers and layers of stability and that enables them at some point to um, um, venture into, you know, and other markets and to create great things with the experience they have accumulated in other domains. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the founder of Teenage Engineering also said that. Like at some point, I think on Twitter, someone X, sorry, someone said um, Teenage engineering could be 10x, you know, its size, its value. And the founder responded, I don't want it to be that because it could come with another set of expectations and another set of obligations and another set of responsibilities that I just do not want for this company. And we have our identity and we create those products because we can do things in that manner. And if you speak with independent researchers in the technological world or if you speak with makers in general, you will find that there is a gap that, seem, that seems hard to bridge, but I believe it's possible. There is a gap between those that, that work alone on their own rhythm, independent researchers, paid by, the, by their communities, and people working at startups. And it seems to me that the, 
the, the, the defining factor of creativity versus productivity and how to put more you know, of that creativity into the world is time. You need time. You need a lot of time. And, and not that much money, actually. I do believe that it's not really a question of money. It's a question of time and people. Yeah, I completely agree. But I mean, time is the scarcest resource of them all. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and the issue is that we need time to be able to think. Um, so it's just ironic how we somehow are still not able to generate the necessary amount of time because it's actually the, the, the one thing that we need to be able to ultimately create something lasting and sustainable. But um, we're running out of time, but maybe just as a last question, because we talked about a lot of different topics and ideas and things that could be done in the world. If you weren't building Cosmic, do you know what we, what you would what you would want to work on? Is there any project that you feel like you would need a lot of time? And if you one day had that time, what would you do with it? That's a great question. There are a lot of things I would love to do. Um, I, I have the chance to 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 also work on other projects. Um, I co-founded a furniture company uh, that works with, you know, um, we are Europeans, so we try to source wood and steel to create the furniture in Europe. We try to work with craftsmen that are very close to, to, to us. Um, and we also have the chance to do some interior design. And so this is something I would really like to pursue. I, I'm, one thing that animates me when I look at the world and when I, when I think about that is, one thing I'm super worried about is that it seems to me that culture in general is getting polished to the point where everything seems the same. And when you travel, for example, like it has never been easier to enjoy life and to enjoy the planet we live on. But if you do not wander outside of the trail that exists for uh, tourists and people in general, when you travel now uh, in, in cities around the world, uh, especially in, in, in the West, they all look the same. Uh, modern architecture, in my opinion, is very interesting, but does not like I don't want to live in those buildings, and they do not seem to convey any sense of you know um, permanence or, or beauty. And so I look at culture in general, and I'm super worried that we are we are getting into a world where creativity will exist, but it will always breed the same thing, and that's something that I'm extremely worried about. And when you look at the the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, it seems that every designer could create a world of its own. Like if you look, for example, at um, um, my, my favorite designer, Ettore Sotas, um, he, he created a world of its own. He designed computers and, and typewriters for Olivetti. He designed, uh, he, he designed buildings. He designed furnitures. And they were extremely different from what uh, his German counterparts and French counterparts were doing at the time. And so you had versions and interpretations of the same symbol. Like, for example, the typewriter is a symbol. Um, it's, it's a machine to write, and it's, you know, it's still in today's world with computers. It's, it's, it's read, it creates feelings of, uh, you know, people long for uh, that, that feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm typing on a typewriter, and it's printing on a sheet of paper, and it's, it makes them feel like they're a great author. And so what I think, it's, what was extremely interesting in the 20th century is that standouts did not really exist. And so you could buy an IBM machine, an Olivetti machine, another type of thing. You had tens of uh, um, car companies. You had uh, thousands of companies doing wonderful objects. And now I don't know where they are. And, and so I would probably work on that. How to create diversity and beauty into the world by taking into account the context into which you create an object. Um, 
And otherwise, I think I will work on maybe something about computing history and its context, like the ties between political history and computing history in the 50s and in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I think design would be my top choice. Yeah, I love it. Now, have you read the, have you read, oh, I'm going to butcher pronouncing his name, Byung Chul Han's books like The Disappearance of Rituals or Hyperculture? Yeah. 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 And and so it's it's one of a, it's a great reference and there are other people working on that and I think it's, I think it's really something that's problematic. Um, we are giving so much freedom, and that's great, but sometimes I feel like we lack roots, and so we do not have reference to go back to to create new things. Yeah. And I think that to, to, as we said time and time again during that podcast, if you want to create something new, I also think that you cannot extract yourself from the context and the corpus from which that thing originates from. Um, and that's to me is one of the most pressing issues with technology right now. We use the same tools to do quite the same thing in a world that is becoming extremely, you know, as I've said, like equal. Everything looks the same. Like you go into Milan, Paris, London, New York, there are Starbucks everywhere. But we do not enjoy coffee in the same way in France, the US, Italy, or, um, you know, uh, Germany or whatever country. And that's to me is the, the thing we need to work on to make sure that we have enough diversity into the world that it can breed inspiration so people can want to create new things what a beautiful thing to end on well thank you thank you so much paul it was um as always an inspiration to talk with you and i look forward to more conversations and updates from cosmic as well me too Rita. it was a real pleasure thank you for uh, inviting me again. thank you